0: This is a Goodwill Media podcast.
1: Essentially, we'd taken um, the Pacific for granted and then felt that we could stop funding, stop um, partnering in the Pacific and it would be fine. And we realised that if we left a vacuum, you know, other players would, would come in. I think presumably some of the same thinking came into Southeast Asia, that this is uh, an area of great importance to Australia, very contested. There are are a number of countries that still have very significant development challenges,
0: and we want to be part of shaping their future. Injecting reason and evidence in government policy is a holy grail for many a researcher, but the times, they are a-changing. And if time-poor Australian development leaders' inboxes are anything like yours and mine, they're overflowing with reports, bulletins and news articles that at best are skim red and at worst gathering dust. So whilst reason and research should be front and centre of Australian development, not all evidence speaks for itself. And this means that the art of persuasion is a key skill for anyone who wants government making and shaping high-impact Australian development. I'm Brady Rice, Director at the Australian Council for International Development and your guest host this summer at Goodwill Hunters. And today, you'll hear from one of the masters of shaping debate in international affairs, Melissa Conley-Tyler. This is the fourth of a six-part series on development and foreign policy. And in our first episode, you heard Richard Maud unpack the role of development in Australian foreign policy. In the second episode, you heard Devex Journal Lisa Cornish explain how the media generates insights and accountability in development. In our third episode, you heard Josie Pagani from across the ditch on the politics of advocating for great development. And today, you're going to hear Melissa make the case for why think tanks and other civil society organisations are key to bridging the gap between research and policy in international affairs. It's always a pleasure chatting with Melissa and today was no exception. We kicked off our discussion with the basics covering Melissa's journey from international conflict resolution to foreign policy. She gives us a behind-the-scenes perspective on how to manage the rough and tumble of social media as an analyst. And as with all my guests, we finish with a discussion of what has touched Melissa the most during COVID-19 and some of her recommendations for summer reading. In the show notes, you'll find a link to the Goodwill Media and ACFID social media channels so you can join in the discussion. Enjoy today's episode and join me next week when I'll be speaking to the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade's James Gilling on how government is responding to the resurgence of poverty and all it brings to the region. Melissa, welcome to Goodwill Hunter's summer series on development and foreign policy. It's great to have you here. Thanks very much, Bridie. Melissa, you're a lawyer by trade, former head of the Australian Institute for International Affairs and you've turned your hand to authoring books. I loved your book on think tank diplomacy, but you're also managing a savvy and growing media profile. So frankly, at this point, you're basically a household name for any of us working in international affairs. And over the last 12 months, we've noticed you publishing more about international development. And I've seen you in action, both in person and online. Your reputation is for smart thinking and courageously heading into contested debates. So today, we're gonna have a chat about the role of researchers and analysts in making and shaping government policy. Be that people who work for think tanks, NGOs, universities, or really any organization that is trying to influence government. But before we get into it, let's kick off by telling us a little about some of the early influences in your life. Mm. Well, look,
1: I started off as a lawyer, which is always a bad way to start any story, but, you know, you can recover. Over time, you can. Um, I got interested in doing something international. And uh, when I, you know, at that stage in my life, it was not much more than that. I wanted to do something good for the world with an international focus. Uh, So I went off to the States. I studied at the Fletcher School in Boston. Um, I got particularly interested in conflict resolution. I mean, it could have been a lot of things. I was also interested in, you know, human rights and refugees and very interested actually in in nutrition in development because they have a very good school there. But anyway, what I got really interested in was conflict conflict resolution Um, I studied a bit at the Harvard program on negotiation I uh, qualified as a mediator um, working in the Bronx in New York and uh then I worked at the International Peace Academy and that took me off to South Africa where I worked on um worked on trauma counseling and its role in reconciliation in post-apartheid um South Africa so that's that's where I was heading I think um I probably would have gone next to Mozambique Um, I found their their post-conflict process absolutely fascinating Uh, but I met my husband as things things like this do happen and um, he's an Australian constitutional lawyer uh, someone less transportable than which it is hard to imagine so we ended up staying in Australia and my job was to look for something internationally focused with uh, from an Australian base Um, I enjoyed a number of jobs Um, um, in retrospect, I think what I was doing was building up the skill set I needed to manage a non-profit organisation that works in this area. So I worked as an office manager in fundraising, in evaluation, um, in communications and websites, just to get a sense of all of those bits, all of the things you have to do. Uh, and so for me, when I started at um, the Australian Institute of International Affairs, that was the dream job. That was the job I'd been building my portfolio for over the previous you know however many years Um, and that was a great privilege so I had 13 years there um, and I probably would have stayed forever (laughs) honestly Um, but the travel was too much I I live in Melbourne and the job was in Canberra so I had 13 years of commuting every every fortnight Uh, and after 13 years it was just too much so I've had two lovely years at the University of
0: Melbourne Oh, Melissa, I think that there might be a whole other series in love stories and career moves. <laughs> Absolutely. In your current work, you do seem to sit somewhere on a spectrum between academic researcher and policymaker. Is that accurate?
1: Um, certainly
0: somewhere in the spectrum.
1: Um, I've never, well, I've only... For a very small amount of time, being a policymaker, I worked in Victorian State Government for a little while, and that was that was very interesting, just to get a sense of of how people are thinking. Um, and this is actually my first time working in as as supposedly a proper academic. Um, <laughs> before this, I've always been in uh, bridge institutions, as I'd say it, um, organisations which are between policy and research, uh, and. The great bit about that is you make connections. The slight downside is you feel like you're not quite part of either community. So if an academic looks at my CV, they're like, well, gosh, you write an enormous amount, but not much in referee journals, thank you very much. Um, and, <laughs> you know, you, you, you just feel somewhere in between the two jobs. But it's a really important place to be somewhere in between.
0: Hmm, we might come back to that, Melissa. So we are here chatting today because of one simple fact, and that is for the first time in a generation over 20 years, the World Bank is predicting a rise in extreme poverty. And this really raises a question about the long game for Australia and our relations in the region, a region full of emerging economies. Can you tell me a little about what increased poverty in our neighbourhood means to you? Mm.
1: Um... It's bad on lots of fronts. Okay, so it's obviously bad for the people who are going to be living in extreme poverty. Um, But if you think of it just in in self-interest terms for Australia, it's bad. So it's bad for the stability um, of the region. Uh, Australia has a strong national interest in the stability and the prosperity of the countries around it. Um, uh, And we've been lucky, I mean, exceptionally lucky, that without us doing a huge amount <laughs> over recent decades, um, our immediate region, you know, has got uh, more and more prosperous and more and more stable because there's been, you know, what would you say, um, a rising tide economically. Uh, I think we're going to have to do a lot more from here. Um, if we if we want to live in a region That is more stable and prosperous and helps us, we're going to have to do more. Uh, And I think we're starting to see that percolating through to some policymakers. Um, So if I look at, you know, probably the biggest unexpected change to me in 2020 in Australian policy is how much there's been a pivot to Southeast Asia and the role of development uh, partnerships. That wasn't clear at the start of this year. Uh, We were all going along to the um, international development policy review uh, meetings and saying, when you're stepping up in the Pacific, don't forget Southeast Asia is also important. And if you look at what's happened over the course of the year, uh, there's much more understanding that that's a a vital area of concern and interest and that one of the tools we have in engaging with the region, one that's really appreciated by the region, is on the development side. So,
0: Melissa, what do you think changed on the Southeast Asia question?
1: Mm. I think... Well, I I think the the rise of China has obviously been important everywhere. Um, That was a a key part of the Pacific step up. Um, If you look at what got policymakers actually thinking differently about development, it was this sense, I've had it described to me by diplomat as, you know, we realised someone else was eating our lunch. You know, essentially we'd taken um, the Pacific for granted, uh, and then, and felt that we could stop funding, stop um, partnering in the Pacific, and it would be fine. And we realised that if we left a vacuum, you know, other players would would come in. Um, I think, presumably, some of the same thinking came into Southeast Asia that this is, uh, you know, uh, an area of great importance to Australia, very contested. Um, there is. You know, there are there are a number of countries that still have very significant development challenges, and we want to be part of shaping their future. I mean, it matters to us, for example, what sort of country Indonesia ends up being. Um, and if we, for example, exit the um, the the funding we were giving to the Indonesian uh, education system, the most likely conduit for funding is going to be Saudi money. Now it should be obvious, I think, to Australians that we'd prefer. That that wasn't the case and we should put our money where our mouth is. So, um, yeah, I think it's a mix, mix both of of the China factor, which has been very important, but also a deeper understanding of where our interests are. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that has been percolating through.
0: And, Melissa, it seems somewhat natural having started your career in peace and conflict and then spending a lot of time in international affairs that you always had your eye on issues of, of aid and development. But why in the last 12 months did you start publishing? What were you trying to say? Look, I think part of it's too, Bridie. You've been, you've been doing wonderful work talking
1: about the links between diplomacy, development and defence, and it got me thinking much more. Um, I, I have to say for people like me, probably, you know, I saw myself linked, well, I was clearly linked when I was at, at the Australian Institute of International Affairs with the foreign affairs portfolio. And um, integration of AusAid into foreign affairs changed the thinking. It wasn't something, would you say, sort of separate and technical, which might have been how foreign affairs people thought of it. It was actually now a key part of statecraft, in the same way that diplomacy and defence are key parts of the statecraft. Uh, so, for me, at least, some of those walls broke down, and I thought, well. I, I'm, I don't know enough about the you know, the technical areas, obviously. I wouldn't claim I do. Um, but I can write about development as a tool for our broader national interest that I have an opinion on and that I should write on, and particularly that sense that too many people just don't understand. The, the same way that they don't understand what diplomacy does, and I promise they don't, they have no idea what diplomacy does to help our national interest, I think often they don't
0: understand what development does. Yep. Diplomacy is all about cocktails, isn't it? Yeah,
1: and, you know, getting stranded Australians back to Australia and, you know, international
0: trade agreements and yeah a
1: few other things too
0: yeah sounds familiar there's a bit more to the aid program than than uh, just vaccinations and toilets although that is pretty critical at the moment too Melissa I want to talk a little bit about the role of think tanks or as you put it I love that those bridge institutions the organizations that live between research and policy how do think tanks and analysts try to shape better government decision making mm. uh I have to say, I, I spend a lot of
1: my time thinking about how to get attention from policymakers, if I want to put it in those terms. So, I mean, they are different cultures for for, for real reasons. Um, policymakers work in uh, work in an environment of um, very limited time, um, trying to find. Um, uh, you know, immediate answers, um, and they're very, uh, what would you say, very resistant to anything that looks or sounds theoretical. Um, so, you know, if you want to get the attention of a policymaker, writing in an academic, academic journal just won't do it. So you have to think, how do I find ways to engage? I mean, from the academic side, um, the problem is most of the ways to engage don't, get you any kudos in the academic system um, you get advancement through a focus on theory abstraction and your discipline not through telling stories to policymakers in a way that they're going to understand so um, I think the bridge institutions are needed because left to themselves those two communities just won't talk to each other at all they, they it will be you know this dialogue of the death where they're they're just not connecting um so yeah a lot of what i did when i was at the australian institute of international affairs was thinking how can i find ways to get the insights from research into policymakers? you know before policymakers' eyes or in their ears at um in a at a time in a format that is actually going to get through to them. And so that could be as simple as things like um, taking articles from the Australian Australian Journal of International Affairs and turning them into tight little blog pieces for Australian outlook. Organising briefings where I take academics to individually brief um, uh, politicians on particular topics that they wanted to know more about, and to help them work out how can they, you know, do that better. So yeah, a range of different different ways. Um, it's it's a it's a time poor, you know, um, group with uh, a lot of people jostling for their attention and you have to find some way to work out what they're interested in what they need and how you can provide it to them
0: Mm. do you think that in the australian environment there is a really robust contest of ideas between think tanks and analysts or, or are we in a bit of an echo chamber
1: Oh, no, I think there's a, a lot of uh, discussion and contest of ideas, it's certainly in the public realm, no question about it. You know, you can find people who have um, quite different views and who are putting it out there. Now, whether that's listened to or not is a different question. So there's always, I mean, there's always groupthink in, in organisations. We know that from psychological research. Uh, and at any given time, there'll be there'll be some axioms which have been accepted by the policy group and if you don't agree with those you're going to have to work hard to break them down because they they are just treating that as common sense as everybody believes everybody knows and you have to work hard to get a different view in
0: mm. you're a bit of a standout in this field we are seeing your name everywhere which isn't the case for many foreign policy analysts and certainly not the case for a lot of women. What are you doing differently Melissa? Well I've loved being at the university so
1: the last uh the last six months I've been in an academic role and I've never had that before um that means I can say literally anything I like um you know within the bounds of wanting to sound broadly well informed and intelligent I can just you know go out there um when I was uh when I was at the think tank, uh we had, you know, we had clear parameters on what we did, and particularly with the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Um its job is to promote public understanding and interest in international affairs, and in it, the constitution it actually says cannot express an opinion on any issue. So Wow. Whatever I thought of, for example, you know, Australia and Afghanistan, couldn't say a word. I could talk about the importance of public education. I could talk about the importance of properly funding our diplomatic service, you know, things like that. That That's in mission. But I couldn't say what I thought on policy. Um, yeah, so this has been, like, exceptionally liberating um, and it helps that it's a short-term contract. I feel like this is a, you know, this is this is my might be my only time where I get to do this in my life. So I might as well enjoy it. Um, I might as well say what I think, um, and you know, whatever that strange phrase is in English, you know, I might as well be hanged for a sheep as a lamb. Like you know, um, what's the point of being cautious and not saying what I think? Um, people are probably going to dislike it anyway. I might as well just do it.
0: Good on you. So much though has been made of our post-fact era which as a researcher mm-hmm. and, and an analyst is, is a is a frightening prospect for many of us um, and there's a few around town who really lament the demise of great public policy making but it's not like our jobs as analysts and interlocutors with government are new. Do you think that influencing good foreign policy and development policy is harder today than ever before?
1: Mm. I'm always cautious. Um, th- there's a bit of a tendency to think we live in uniquely difficult times, um, and, and I assure you, you know, if you look historically, everybody believes that. Everybody believes that the time they're living in is uniquely bad. You know, like you can look back at the Greeks and they'll talk about the youth of today, you know, dear, oh, dear. So I, I, I'm not sure I... It, it's. I'm not sure it's getting worse um, apart from the realm of technology. Okay, so I think most of the things that made it hard to influence policymakers were the same 20 or 40 years ago. You know that they're time poor, that they're not interested, um, that they care more about you know electoral success than they do about perfect policy. Well, you know th- those are givens, actually. <laughs> you know those are just how the world works, and you work within that. Um, to me, the miracle is we ever make good policy rather than the other way around. Um, but I I do think that the the, the changes in technology are going to make it much more difficult to get a consensus on what's happening in the world, what's factually happening in the world. And that's that's a new challenge, at least recently. Obviously, it was before as well, and that's, that's, I suppose, where we're going back to. We're going back to the times where you didn't have reliable information on what was happening in all parts of the world and you had to be a policymaker regardless. You know, we have lived in that before. In this case, I think the biggest problem is that we won't have a single societal sense of what is happening. Um, we will have, uh, because people have, you know, technology that gives them their own personalised view of the world, you know, the... the um, the, the information feeds drawn on their past preferences that um, confirm those preferences rather than challenge them. People will have their own information universes where they only have certain sort of information which gives them a particular view of the world. And, and as we get, you know, AI-created deep fake photos and deep fake recordings, we genuinely will not know as much about what's happening and whether we trust something or not will depend upon where we get it from which will again depend upon our existing um ideas of who to trust and who not to trust so yeah I, I genuinely see that there is going to be much harder to get a societal consensus on anything and i don't know what that's going to do to politics i mean i think that's going to be fascinating to see what it does do um it may mean, and I'm not sure of this yet, um, but it may mean that we actually focus less of our efforts on trying to inform the general public and more on decision makers. But then it could be the other way. It could be that if there's not many trusted sources of information, bridge institutions should use their long-term, you know, branding and Um, and reputation to become that, to become a trusted source of information when there are very few. So, yeah, I think that's going to be fascinating to watch what that means.
0: Mm, Amazing to think what that might mean also for the voices of those in the region who are going to be most impacted by, by increased poverty as well. Yeah. The Goodwill Hunters summer series is creating big waves in the development sector. Now, in preparation for our autumn series, We are looking for a brand partner. Could it be you? If your company wants to support development debate, promote your work to our audience, and get brand recognition amongst the leaders of this $5 billion industry, then please get in touch. Your ad could be featured in each of our episodes. Details on how to get in touch are in the show notes. So, Melissa, we've covered off on a few key concepts so far. We've we've looked at what economic backsliding means in our region and, and you've painted a very strong picture and link between Australia's national interest in stability and, and the future recovery of our region. We've looked briefly at the interactions between researchers, analysts and how we influence government. But I want to go another round on the technology question and I want us to turn to the topic of researchers and social media. You're clearly someone who is engaging on social media and using it to shape debate on development and broader foreign policy. What are your observations? Mm. Um, oh.
1: Look, it is what it is, I suppose. Um, it's a way to get out to a lot of people. Um, they won't always be polite or nice, um, but they read and thought about and engaged with what you wrote, so it's worth doing. Um, I got the advice uh, last year that you do best when you concentrate on just a couple of social media platforms, um, three at most. So um, I've been working with, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn and Yammer to um, let my organisation know what I'm doing. Uh, And, you know, they're they're okay. Uh, I, I, I might give you a different view if... If I was spending my entire life on Reddit, I don't know if that's more or less polite, but um, LinkedIn is is you know broadly polite. Mostly, the way people would act if they saw you in person. Um, Twitter is not as polite, uh, and people will um, pe- people will you know play the writer, not the writing, uh, a bit more than I would like. Uh, but again, you engage with a lot of people, um, and engaging is very important.
0: Mm. And what do you, how do you choose what to engage on?
1: Yeah. So for me, um, you know, when I'm getting, for example, the, the comment section in uh, the conversation, you know, you you can, you can see it a few ways. I mean, you could read it and you could get, you could absolutely despair. You could say, "Oh my God!" You know, why am I trying to talk to this sort of bear pit of people? But I, I do it a little differently. I sort of, um, I sort of divide it into different categories. So there are people in there who who simply don't share my um, assumptions. So let's say, you know, my assumption that we care about poverty in the region, if their attitude is, no, it it's, doesn't affect us, it doesn't matter, we don't care about it, I'm like, well, we're not even really engaging in the same conversation. I hope that maybe what I said might have started to, you know, crack something and they might've thought about it a bit more, but if not, there it is. So I I don't tend to engage in them. If they're from a completely different premise, my attitude is, well, you know, you hated my article. Fine. We're not talking, we're not even talking about the same topic. So I just ignore those ones. Um, Some of them will show, uh, show something that I didn't explain well enough or that I thought I explained better than I did, or you know, I, I, something went wrong in translation, and they didn't get what I meant. Those are really important ones, and I've got to read them carefully and think about how do I refine my arguments, how do I do this better. Um, Can you-
0: Melissa, yeah. can you give us an example of that?
1: Yeah, well, I've been writing a bit on um, what Australia could do if it wanted to improve its relationship with China, which is, you know, at a at a new low point. And as someone who never who tries very hard not to say things like "new low point," I, it actually is at a new low point. So, um, and a lot of the the comments I get on that, are, you know, that, for example, are you saying it's all Australia's fault, not uh, China's? And I'm not saying that at all. Um, The way I respond is, you know, if I were a Chinese um, analyst trying to offer the Chinese government ideas on how it could improve its relationship with Australia if it doesn't like where it currently is, you know, I'd be writing it differently. Um, What I'm writing is uh, for the only audience I have any hope of influencing, um, which is an Australian audience. So you know, making quite clear what I'm doing there. Um, and it's useful for me. So if I hear that, I was like, ah, I hadn't made clear who I'm writing for and why, and that I'm not saying it's all Australia's fault, I actually think, you know, Conflict Resolution says that cycles of of, of, um, of deteriorating relationships are definitely caused by both parties. So, you know, there's no question that both parties have been involved in it um, and could have made different decisions Uh yeah, no, but then the last group I should mention that I, when I'm looking at comments on, on social media, is the people actually do want to have a discussion, who are interested in engaging, and they're wonderful. You know they'll say oh, i liked what you said here but i didn't quite understand this or what about this or have you thought about this and that's the conversation that's what's exciting about it is having that discussion um my mind gets changed by that i think about different things i think about connections between things that i hadn't seen before um and you know that's worth weathering that first category for you know
0: hmm Melissa, something I have noticed about the way that you engage in your writing and social media is that you resist the researcher and certainly the lawyer's instinct to play it safe. You know, the typical let's throw a million big words and heavy concepts out there, Uh, but that's just something that you don't do. You always seem to have a narrative. Is that deliberate? Uh, Yes, it is. It is. It's good communication to have a narrative
1: um, to tell a story. Um, I think we forget sometimes that policymakers work just the way everybody else does. They they need a story, a compelling narrative um, that they can understand and use to um, interpret events, and that they can use rhetorically to explain to others. Um, so. Telling a story is a huge part of what you want to do. Framing that narrative, um, I, I, I'm, I, I'm not sure I always do it as well as I want, but I know that that's what I want to do. Um, I also try very hard, you know, to use the techniques of persuasion. Um, I did a did a great course when I was doing my masters on how do you persuade people of things and. You know, I enjoy that. I think about it all the time. Um, Whatever your background is, think about what you find persuasive, you know, what helps you. Um, Yeah, and I I suppose I'm really lucky. I I often have excellent editors who I work with, you know, whether it's on something like The Conversation or East Asia Forum. Um, If you have someone else who can help you hone that argument, who can help you, you know, turn it from I think I know what I want to say into this is how you change people's minds, that's fantastic. And editors, re- or a good editor really can be so much a part of that. Um, mm.
0: and Melissa, how do you stay resilient in the face of public critique and the rough and tumble of social media?
1: Mm.
0: Look, it's difficult
1: and I, 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 I'm i sure some of the listeners who, who work um, in, you know, very... Even, much more difficult areas Um, will have, you know, really good techniques in place. Um, I think I've tried to think about some of those techniques uh, that, you know, how am I going to look after myself, make sure that I'm not, um, I'm not stopped from, from writing by negative feedback. Um, Yeah. And, And I think, you know, many of the techniques that, um, that people use in other areas are helpful, uh, taking time out, doing self-care, um, thinking about whose opinions you care about um, and uh, concentrating on those. So as I say, I, I'm not stressed if if um, I get a lot of negative feedback from people who are just coming from a completely different perspective than me, who have no interest in answering the question that I'm trying to answer. Um, But I do care about the people who I consider very knowledgeable and if I get feedback from them that they thought I put something well or that I explained it well or that I helped move debate in a particular area, then I'll take that very seriously. Um, Yeah, and and I think, you know, seeing that, seeing the positive side all the time, um, particularly if you're working in an area where you you're up against it, it's a long-term discussion. You know, like if you've been working in climate change policy for for years and you haven't had a very receptive environment. For me at the moment, it's, you know, thinking about better relations with China, that's that's not um, a particularly popular view and I'm going to get a lot of negative, um, negative feedback, but you have to just keep doing it. You know, that that's the job and the job is to keep putting it out there because somebody needs to put it out there. Uh, and it may be that the policy realm moves a bit and your views become more popular. That will be great. But even so, you have to keep telling the truth as you see it.
0: Mm. Well, it's one thing that 2020 has shown us. The policy winds can change and they can change mm. quickly. So keep banging the drum, Melissa. We're going to finish up with two questions that I'm asking each guest The first one is, what fact or headline has touched you most during the COVID-19 period?
1: Well, you'll like this because it's a development one. Um, There was a headline uh, that I think it was two billion people don't have access to clean water and sanitation in their homes, which gives a sense in COVID land of... um, how difficult it is to stop the spread of disease if um, that bigger proportion of the world population uh, doesn't have the access they need. Um, Interestingly, when I read that, I thought about a fantastic book I read this year, which I'll I'll recommend to people called Factfulness by Hans Rosling, um, where he looks at the Big changes in the world, and whether we understand them or not. Um, one he's asked people around the world for years, from you know ordinary publics to uh, um, economists to uh, business people, etc., has been what's happened to global poverty in the last forty years. Has it more or less stayed the same, doubled, or halved? Most people everywhere say it has either stayed the same or doubled. And I'm hoping that the people on listening will know that the right answer is that it's halved, that we've made enormous progress in dealing with extreme poverty over the last half century, let's say. That helps me when I read that headline 2 billion people not having access to sanitation and water in their homes to think first how far we've come second that we have the tools to do something about this this is not uh, set in stone it is not the case that people have to be in these conditions we can and should use the tools and knowledge we have to keep Improving life, moving people from um, in Rosling's book, he talks about four levels. You know, one, two, three, four that you work through, um, moving more people out of the level one, um, very worst situation, and keeping moving them up the you know the the ladder of human prosperity, um, and and the freedom to live the life that you want to live that comes with that. So. Uh, I think in the past I might have read that headline and been um, quite uh, quite poleaxed by it, as in that's terrible, what can we do? I am trying very hard to look at that headline and say we've come a long way and we can and should do more.
0: Melissa, that sounds like a perfect note for us to finish on. Certainly I'm going to put Factfulness on my summer reading list Thank you very much. I think what you're saying is times are tough, but we've done it before. We can do it again um, and bring on 2021. So, Melissa Conley Tyler, thank you for joining us on Goodwill Hunters. Thanks very much, Bridie. It is always a pleasure to talk.
1: Thank you.